For a while, I've been kicking around the idea of doing a series on TV shows and not just covering like one or two season wonders over the course of one, but doing one that focuses on an individual writer of a classic show. Twilight Zone, I think, is an obvious candidate for this sort of treatment. However, while I was too intimidated to tackle Rod Serling on the very first one, or <laughs> Richard Matheson even, I considered uh, Charles Beaumont uh, the other major Twilight Zone writer. And while I was looking into it, because I didn't really know too much about the background of the Twilight Zone until fairly recently, I discovered that three of Beaumont's credited episodes were not written by him, but instead by uh, Jerry Soule. So I thought that would be a good way to start things off. Uh, my name is Ryan. It's a real deep dive. And joining me on this episode is both my brother Sylvan and Rachel. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hey, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't like the Twilight Zone. I guess there must be somebody, but we're all pretty into it. So oh, yeah. this is a natural choice for an episode of the show. It's only a matter of time before we did it. Although we did the night gallery first, because, because why not? Rachel. Yeah, because I picked it. <laughs> uh, but I mean... I love Rod Serling, and I love The Twilight Zone, and funnily enough, these uh, Jerry Soul-written episodes are all ones that I'm really fond of. A little background of this, first thing that came to mind when I found out that three of Beaumont's credited episodes were not actually written to, uh, by him was, why? So, I did some digging. Charles Beaumont started publishing science fiction stories around 1950, and amazing stories. He was the first fiction writer to get into Playboy, interestingly enough. And Good for him. after that happened, that's when film and TV shows began hiring him. The Twilight Zone is his most well-known. He has 22 credited episodes. Among the ones that he actually wrote include The Howling Man, Number 12 Looks Just Like You, which is a personal favorite oh, of mine, uh, Miniature, Static, and Printer's Devil. When he turned 34, Beaumont began to suffer from a mysterious brain disorder that seemed to age him rapidly. During this period, his ability to speak, concentrate, and remember things was affected. Now, there's a lot of possible reasons that people attribute this to it. Some believe it was uh, alcoholism, began drinking heavily as he started taking on more writing work, although his friends dispute this. It could be related to spinal meningitis from his childhood. Uh, a lot of people say it was early onset Alzheimer's or Pick's disease. That's what he was diagnosed with. What Do is that? That's uh, a brain disorder. Oh. Uh, doctors gave him about a year to live at that point. Now, in order to handle his heavy workload, despite his deteriorating mental acuity, some of his friends, most notably William F. Nolan and Jerry Soule, began ghostwriting for him. Beaumont wouldn't let them do it unless he split the fees with them. This happened for the last few years of his life. He died in 1967 at the age of 38. Oh, that's really young. Soul was a science fiction writer with numerous TV and film credits. Like I said, he was friends with Beaumont, wanted to do him a solid, admired him. Soul started out on General Electric Theater, which is an anthology show funded by GE, unsurprisingly. And among other things, that is where Rod Serling honed his craft before the Twilight Zone. Did Jerry Soul write any other Twilight Zone episodes under his own name? No, just the three under Beaumont's. Oh, okay. He did, ha however, have a couple of credited episodes on The Outer Limits and Al Alfred Hitchcock Presents, so he's suited to the TV anthology series. He also has three episodes of Star Trek, although a couple of them are... Ooh, which ones? ...done under the pseudonym of Nathan Butler. Specifically, The Corbinite Maneuver, This Side okay. of Paradise, and Whom Gods Destroy. 
All right, all kind of, I'd say, mid-level episodes of uh, Star Trek. Corbinite Maneuver is the first one that I saw. Oh, boy. That is an interesting <laughs> first Star Trek episode. I don't remember my been watching Star Trek since I could, like, sit upright. I am not a Trekkie. That's the one where they find this cosmic space buoy and destroy it, and then they get chased by this space monster, and it turns out not to be a space monster. It's actually like a giant toddler baby that's played by Ron Howard's brother. Yeah, I know, and he, his, his dialogue is like dubbed over with adult radio star voice instead. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, let's start off with the trio of, <laughs> of Soul's, uh, Twilight Zone episodes, the first being Queen of the Nile, which was broadcast as part of season five it was episode 23 which makes it the 143rd overall uh, this one uh, centers on chicago columnist jordan herrick interviewing pamela morris a 38 year old actress renowned for her beauty and vitality he notices a portrait of morris dated to 1940 which she writes off as the painter projecting what he felt she'd look like as an adult she could have just said that's a portrait of my mother but no i think it's because she's kind of vain you know or a silver pointed having fun with them yeah, she doesn't seem to mind the prospect of being caught. I think she decided pretty early in that she was going to eat him with her magic beetle. I'd say spoilers, but I was going to get to that. <laughs> her, ha- her house is just bedecked in very tacky Egyptian gear, and she comes out with big old Elizabeth Taylor hair. So She looks like discount Elizabeth Taylor. On his way out, Jordan is confronted by an old woman who lives there as Pamela's mother, and she warns Jordan against seeing Pamela ever again. She adds that Pamela is older than she looks, and that she isn't actually Pamela's mother, she's her daughter. Yeah. After their date, Pamela mentions the theater she performed at when Jordan mentions his roots in Chicago. You know, she was uh, super flirty with him throughout, even laid one on him during the uh, meetup. So she offered to take him out to dinner. He's like, yeah, sure, why not? And that's the thing. Eric doesn't think that she's a threat at all, even when he does start to kind of figure out her secret. Jordan asked Pamela about, you know, what that old lady said earlier, which leads Pamela to expand upon how my poor old mother is mentally ill and has been making up stories ever since... My uh-huh. father died in yeah. a car accident. I totally killed him. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you'll think we can talk about that later, but I totally think that Pamela either seduced and ate her daughter's husband. Jordan calls up his editor to look into Pamela's first film, The Queen of the Nile. His editor finds out that it's a remake of an old silent film whose star, Constance Taylor, was killed in a cave-in near the end of the shooting. Jordan asks his editor to pull out some photographs of Constance, and he notes that Constance and Barbara look very similar, to the point where it seems like it's the same photographer who took the picture of the same <laughs> actress in one session. Hey, it's the Twilight Zone. They had a small budget. Yeah. He then looks into the theater Barbara mentioned, uh, talking about performing at, learning that it had been torn down over four decades ago. Spooked, Jordan asks his editor to look into every man that Barbara has ever been involved with. Yeah, apparently this is the before Wikipedia days. (laughs) And with this arsenal of information, he decides to just straight up confront the movie monster. Just no plan whatsoever. Yes, Jordan confronts Barbara with what he's learned at her manor. He's even inside her house when he does this. But she had already drugged his coffee, and once he keels over, Barbara places a scarab on Jordan that drains his life energy. After he crumbles to dust, Barbara places the scarab on her chest, transferring the life force to herself. 
And the final shot is of another columnist arriving to interview Pamela and starting the cycle anew. In his closing monologue, Serling strongly implies that Barbara is Cleopatra VII, the, you know, the famous one. Yeah, and she also makes her daughter uh, clean up the, the dusty dead reporter on the floor. All right, production for this. The pool in this episode that Barbara is flirtily swimming in as she gets out and towels off was also used in The Trouble with Templeton and in The Bewitching Pool. Yeah, it's like I thought it looked very familiar to The, the Bewitching Pool. Yeah, The, the Bewitching Pool is the very last episode of The Twilight Zone and often seen as one of the worst. I liked it. I thought it was really unsettling. I did not care for it, and I seem to be in agreement with the, the majority of the fan community, at least those of us who rant about the Twilight Zone online anyway. <laughs> I didn't mind the bewitching pool, although it does bug the crap out of me that one of the little girls sounds like Rocky the Flying Squirrel. More on that later. <laughs> When Jordan is on the phone with his editor, his editor makes a reference to the Floridora Girls, which is a reference to a then-popular musical that ran on Broadway for over 550 performances around the year 1900. That is an arcane reference that I dug out because that bugged the crap out of me. Yeah, so that's old, even by the standards of the early 60s. The rapid aging trick, of which Jordan dissolves, was also used in Long Live Walter Jameson. What they did is that they applied red makeup to the actor's face and then lit him with red lighting so that the makeup wasn't visible on black and white television. And then they brought up green lights in order to make those age lines suddenly appear. Oh, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah, that, that one's used a lot, especially in low-budget anthology TV shows such as this one. The first draft of the script had a police officer investigating Jordan's disappearance uh, approach Pamela, and then she gets all flirty starting this life anew. Not sure why they changed it, just another columnist. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure she would have eaten the police officer, too. She is very confident in what she is doing. Well, oh, yeah. if she's Cleopatra, and she's about two millennia old and hasn't been caught yet, so maybe she's getting a little cocky. Maybe she could lean a lull them into a false sense of security again, flash a pretty smile, and they're eating out of her palm before she eats them. Mm. The music for this was composed by Lucien Morawieck. Uh, he's a French jazz pianist. At this point, he is semi-retired and doing film and TV cue music. It's pretty straightforward, prepackaged stuff. So sometimes some really well-known composers work on The Twilight Zone. More on that in another episode. I do think some of the bits are a little on the nose, especially when he's going through the house and every time it stops at like a tacky looking Egyptian statue, it goes, done. Yeah, I was like, ah, straight out of the British Museum. <laughs> uh, the cast for this, Anne Blythe is Pamela. She is best known for playing Veda in uh, Mildred Pierce, where in which she got an Oscar nod. As Rachel put it, she's discount Elizabeth Taylor. This is roughly when Elizabeth Taylor was in the famous Cleopatra debacle, so... That's more of the not-subtle foreshadowing for you. <laughs> I think she did a good job oh, playing yeah. a suspicious but overconfident starlet. Yeah, she's good. Not crazy about the hair job. They just like made her look like she had a six head. You know, as someone who is a member of a big forehead gang, I am always glad to see five head representation in media. 
She is one of the only people from Golden Age Hollywood who is still alive as of this recording. She is 92. Good for her. Jordan is played by Lee Phillips, who's generic handsome man. Yeah. You know, he's fine in this. This episode doesn't really ask much of him. If anyone gets to, you know, vamp it up and eat up scenery, it's it's Blythe. She gets the fun part. Who plays the, the mom? The daughter, yeah. Who plays her? I'm... Not sure. I looked up. Uh, I didn't take down her name. I looked up her credits. Just a whole bunch of random TV uh, mm-hmm. bits. Yeah, she she's fun in this. I should have gotten her name. Uh, well, if you're a Twilight Zone super fan or you've listened to a bunch of other Twilight Zone podcasts, they probably brought it up. All right, themes for this episode. I do think that this is just a mashup of picture of Dorian Gray with various bits from vampire fiction with some ancient Egyptian scenes thrown on top of it. Not unlike Universal's original Mummy movie. Made me think of that documentary I saw about EC Comics where the writers would come up with springboards. And by springboards, I mean lifting an old Ray Bradbury story and then (laughs) grafting something onto it. Because because we're all on cocaine, we need to write 12 more of these before noon. Yeah, no, I think it's a fun episode. You know, I, I think the whole idea that, you know, you're immortal, but you can have like a family and watch them slowly, you know, age and die around you is kind of unsettling. I, I don't like that. Yeah, but, a couple of weeks ago, we watched an action movie on Netflix, The Old Guard, that yeah. looks at that from another perspective, makes it out to be more tragic. He's sad that his son grew up and grew old and died and resented him for not. Yeah, it also made me think of Stormfront, the immortal Nazi woman and the boys who had a daughter who grew old and died of Alzheimer's. Although this does imply that if she wanted to, she could have kept the daughter young. Like, hmm. she's just a bad person. Yeah, she could have shared that scarab, that but the daughter has, like, more morality about it than she does. She's she's very threatening to her. Oh, yeah, yeah. He keeps threatening to murder her. Because, once again, she's over two millennia old uh, at this point. Human life is meaningless to her. It's just a blur. Yeah, I, f- I have a funny suspicion that maybe the daughter stays around to, I don't know, exact some sort of revenge on her mother because it does imply that she seduced and ate her husband. And she does seem like she is trying to find a one of her mother's potential meals that's, like, not completely stupid and someone that she can work with. I know she probably wants to figure out where the scarab is because she's hidden it from her daughter, too. Well, she's apparently had seven decades to find it, but, yeah. <laughs> Last one, Pamela, is just a run-of-the-mill figure of your femme fatale vampire archetype. In this case, a literal succubus. <laughs> And it uh, gets back to not only is she part of that whole film noir and further back, uh, you can't trust the beautiful woman who puts thoughts in your head that you don't attribute to yourself. It's her fault that you have this raging erection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were watching and I was like, yeah, she eats shrimps for breakfast. <laughs> and as you put it, Jordan is weirdly not threatened by her. No. Just walks right into the house. Nope. And- her with irrefutable evidence that she's an old vampire. Yeah, like, I, I still... What was your plan? You were going to reveal, I know everything, and I could totally blow this wide open with my job as a reporter. Why would you try to kill me for that? He's like, I'm a man. I can do what I want. Yeah, I think this is a fun episode, but I wouldn't be surprised if Sol wrote this real fast, tight deadline. 
Yeah, but it doesn't mean that it's bad, even if you did have to, like, clickety-clack it away immediately. Uh, the visuals are certainly fun. Oh, they, yes. they did a nice job playing with the Egyptian chatskis and stuff. Pamela has a couple nice outfits. All right, if uh, nobody has uh, anything else to contribute, I will move on to the new exhibit. Oh, I, really, I like this episode a lot. All right, this is the previous season, season four, episode 13, which makes it 115 overall. This is during the hour-long Twilight Zone episode season, which even super fans are pretty ambivalent about. Uh, Serling himself expressed that he didn't think the hour-long was the best format for the show. They went right back to standard operating procedure for the fifth season. I think on Thursday We Leave for Home is one of the best episodes of the Twilight Zone, but yeah, the hour-longs are either pretty good or meh. Most of them could be trimmed down to 22 minutes oh, yeah. without issue. I think this one could, uh, um, the new exhibit could have been trimmed down. Yeah, it didn't suffer as much as some of the hour-long episodes that I've seen, but there was some fat that could have been trimmed off of it. What's interesting to me is that the Jordan Peele Twilight Zones, most of those are about an hour long. They vary, they ping-pong back and forth because, you know, it's meant for streaming, so it doesn't have to be 20 minutes or 50 minutes in order to leave room for commercials. It can just be as long as it feels like being. I need to watch more of them. There are a lot of Twilight Zone zombies who hate the Peele version. I think it's hit or miss. The good ones are really good, but... I still haven't seen any yet. The new exhibit centers on Martin Sinescu, who works at a wax museum. Specifically, <laughs> he's the curator of the serial killer section. Murderer's Row, and he loves it way too much. Even though this is a longer episode than most of them, we're still talking very broadly stroked archetypes here. They tell you, they let you know that Sinescu is more interested in these figures than he should be real early. Mr. Ferguson, the proprietor of the Wax Museum, informs Martin that the declining public interest has spurred his desires to retire. Dispirited that the museum is to be torn down and replaced by a supermarket, Martin volunteers to store the figures of the infamous killers in his home until a buyer can be found. Oddly enough, this man has a wife. Yeah, we speculated as to how. Uh, my theory is that he is the fail son of some random rich guy, maybe a real estate developer, so, you know, he had some money. Had being the operative word. Yeah, he didn't seem too concerned about finding a new job after this one fell apart. Uh, we'll get more into that. We'll but they do have financial life. woes. Yeah. He's very fixated on his wax figures. The Murderer's Row exhibit includes <laughs> Jack the Ripper, or at least a likeness thereof. Jack the Ripper is famously uncaught. And he looks like Benedict Cumberbatch in this version. I'm picking up Andrew Jackson vibes personally. And I'm going to repeat what I said before. Yes, Jack the Ripper was never caught. However, making a wax figure of a generic-looking white man from the time period, they could have done worse. The other ones are Albert W. Hicks, Henry Desiree Landru, William Burke, and William Hare. I am not really a true crime buff, so I had to Google all of them. Yeah, I mean, as the as a resident true crime buff, I gotta say that, like, if this episode was remade today, I'm pretty sure that only Jack the Ripper and maybe Birkenhair would be in the exhibit. Everybody else... Who cares? It would be like, this is my wax figure of Ted Bundy and Timothy McVeigh instead. Because I went to a wax museum that was full of, like, serial killers when I was in Canada. And let me just say, they didn't have any, like, old-timey people besides gangsters. Martin only makes a perfunctory effort at selling the figures or finding another museum who will take them. Seems to be under the impression that he can start a new one himself. 
Preferring to keep them in the basement and care for them personally, his wife, Emma, is horrified to discover <laughs> that the constant air conditioning required to keep the figures from melting has wiped out their savings after a couple of weeks. She is further disturbed by how Martin interacts with the figures, talking to them and stroking them and cleaning them as if they are alive, and also his lovers. He is taking better care of the wax figures than he is of himself. Like, one of the things that he objects to is... Her desire to continue doing laundry in the basement. The humidity will damage the figures. Their clothing is being better tended than his own. Yeah, he he really loves and cares for them. He he doesn't. He also like really defends them. He's like every teenage girl who says that she wants to marry, uh, you know, Klebold or Harris or I love James Holmes. Like people who call. Oh, my sister actually went to art school with someone who called. What's his face? The guy that ate people. Dahmer, a gay icon. He he would get along with those teenage girls. Ugh. Yeah. You see, my first thoughts about this guy is just, you know, a dude in his mid to late 30s who never got over his Ayn Rand phase in college. <laughs> he was like, if I could play devil's advocate here for a minute, no. know you rant about the Third Reich. Yeah, I mean, I think Martin's probably closer to his mid to late 40s than late 30s. Well, one thing I've noticed about the Twilight Zone is that all of the male actors look much older than the characters they're supposedly playing. Anytime a uh, male character's age is given, they always look about like 10 years older than what is said. And sometimes they are the genuine age because people just sometimes look older. Because Rod Serling was younger than me when he started the Twilight Zone and he does not look like it. He looks like he started smoking when he was eight. He probably did, and probably being in World War II didn't help. And also dying of lung cancer. Yes. R.I.P. Rod Serling. At the behest of her brother Dave, Emma sneaks out of bed in order to shut down the AC and melt the figures. This causes the Jack the Ripper figure to come to life and stab her to death. After discovering Emma's body... Martin is slightly annoyed. Yeah. Yeah. And he's more annoyed by the fact that Jack didn't clean off his knife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Martin frantically buries her in the basement since nobody could believe that a wax statue stabbed her to yeah, death. Yeah, he buries her in a perfectly body-shaped hole. <laughs> and then cements it up himself. Yeah, he doesn't even cover it with a rug. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, dude, hide the fresh cement. Put a rug on it. My God. <laughs> he clearly did not have the benefit of listening to True Crime podcast back in the day. Oh, yes. Dave pays a call and inquires about Emma's whereabouts. Uh, Martin does not lie well, claiming to have gotten rid of the figures despite the audible hum of the AC blaring away in the basement. Yeah, Martin's sweating the entire time Dave is talking to him. You know, you said that Dave reminded you of Nick Offerman. I was yeah, get, he I, does. I was getting Mr. Peanut Butter vibes. <laughs> specifically, the name of that actor who escapes me, his character in Reno 911. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't watched a lot of Reno. Oh, he's also on a Jordan Peele Twilight Zone. Oh, all right. But yeah, he just has, like, the voice of Nick Offerman, and he has a mustache, so... Eh. So when Dave sneaks into the basement to investigate, he is killed by Hicks with his axe. I gotta say, um, you know, due to, like, the the rules of, of the time, I think this episode is pretty violent, even if it happens off-screen and there's really no, well... I mean, it even shows blood. blood. Yeah, it does. Several weeks later, Mr. Ferguson visits to inform Martin that he sold the figures to a museum in Brussels and seems disturbed by, like, he's like, wait, Martin, are you sleeping down here? <laughs> yeah, he, he is, his fatal flaws that he's just too nice to his friend who's clearly off the deep end. 
Yeah, he got some signals to run, and he did not run. We see. We, we theorized that the main reason he saw the museum is so he doesn't have to interact with Martin anymore. <laughs> so when the wax figures murder him as well, Martin is actually way more upset than he was about any of the other murders. Yeah, so crestfallen, Martin goes upstairs to make tea while Ferguson begins taking measurements of the figures for shipping purposes. After a remark about Landrew's width, Ferguson <laughs> is strangled by him. And that is the most effective kill scene in the film. Rachel mentioned that she jumped the first time. Yeah, I mean, I was like waiting for them to move. Like, the episode establishes that Jack the Ripper has a little switch. His arm will move in a stabbing motion. The axe comes down, but it's, you know, off screen. But when Landru uh, starts to strangle Mr. Ferguson, he moves. And, you know, half the time you're like, yeah, those are people in costume holding really still. But it's still upsetting. I jumped the first time I watched this episode. Deeming the death of Ferguson the last straw for some reason. <laughs> Martin grabs uh, a crowbar with the intent of smashing them, although he's still polite enough to ask which one wants to go first. I thought it was a failed taunt. Yeah. Uh, the figures come alive and advance on Martin, accusing him of killing Emma, Dave, and Mr. Ferguson. Uh, they pounce on a screaming Martin as he denies culpability. I thought that part was pretty freaky because you can hear their voices and they, they are kind of distorted so they sound very surreal and they're just kind of creeping slowly and like Jack the Ripper's expression is a little different each time you look at him. It's creepy. Yeah, they have human faces. Uh, well, they have waxen faces, but human eyes. Yes, it's very upsetting. Uh, sometime later in Brussels, the figures are on display alongside a wax replica of Martin. Surprise, surprise, it wasn't the wax uh, figures. He was the serial killer the whole time. I mean, I kind of like that they keep it mostly ambiguous there i mean yeah it probably is it probably was him and i also like the implication that maybe not all of him but some of him is is in the wax figure yeah I, i'm under the impression that it's just the actor with the makeup job martin balsam i don't know for sure but yeah it seems like it probably yeah. is uh, for the production of this, Beaumont was actually involved in this one Aww, somewhat. Good. Uh, he had a couple of um, bowl sessions with Sol, and they came up with the basic plot of the story before Sol wrote the teleplay for it. Director John Brown, who did over a dozen Twilight Zone episodes and over a dozen Alfred Hitchcock Presents, there's a lot of overlap <laughs> between those two shows. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised at all. This is his second attempt at, uh, at a Jack the Ripper story. His first was the film The Lodger, which uh, came out in 1944. Martin Balsam, this is his only OG Twilight Zone appearance, but he shows up in two episodes of the 1980s series. There is no proper score for this one, and is pulled entirely from stock music. Uh, wait a minute, I looked him up on IMDb while we were watching this, because I thought he looked familiar, and he was in the one with the movie starlet who like goes into the screen. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen any of the 80s Twilight Zone. No, 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 this was... An OG Twilight oh, Zone. Oh, okay. All right. You know, the one who can't stop watching for old movies. Oh, yeah. I haven't watched that one in a long time. Okay, so maybe I should have looked at his IMDb page more carefully. <laughs> it's okay. That's why you have us as guests. Well, see, I, I stopped after the 80s Twilight Zone. Maybe. To be fair, he had like 170 acting credits. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll blame it on that. All right, uh... <laughs> 
Themes for this one, first and most obviously, the Uncanny Valley. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uncanny Valley off the deep end. I mean, they keep talking about how lifelike the wax figures are, and then, no, not really. They're a little off, and I think that's by design by the people who designed this episode. Yeah, I mean, I, I assume that it's uh, mostly talented makeup work with the occasional puppet thrown in. There, there are credited actors for it, too, for people when they do start to move at the end. Do they do show up on both the Wikipedia? entries and the IND page and the Twilight Zone wiki. Of course, the Twilight Zone wiki is way more obsessive than the other ones. <laughs> As it should be. Yeah, I mean, I I worked in, like, a tourist trappy wax museum, and you know, going down there with the lights on, it's like, whatever, but we had to shut the lights off downstairs at the end of every shift and then turn them on at the start. And yes, it was creepy. It's like they weren't murderers or anything, but I was still like, yeah, what if they start moving every single time I had to go turn the lights on or off? I recently read a think piece about the Uncanny Valley that speculated as to why it came about, because humans are the only animals that have an Uncanny Valley effect psychologically. We are off-put by things that kind of look like us, but they're, they're a little not. And a lot of people want to know why. Why? What evolutionary reason would humans have that? And the most common theory is because Cro-Magnons had a 10,000-year-long war with Neanderthals. <laughs> so if you see something that kind of looks like a Cro-Magnon, but it has a bigger forehead, oh no. I mean, clearly I have a big forehead and have some Neanderthal ancestors. But um, I don't know, I think maybe dogs may have it a little bit. Like, maybe, maybe not to the same degree, because when I was working at the Wax Museum, we had a, a gentleman come down with his service dog, and the service dog... Boy, was she confused by the wax figures, and she got very protective of him. And the whole time, his wife kept, like, patting the dog and saying, It's okay. They're not real. But she was like, ah, 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 ah. They're not people, but they're not moving. So, like, the dog knew to, like, a certain extent that, you know, something's wrong here. Yeah, but those weren't slightly off dogs. Ah, true, true. And speaking of the Uncanny Valley, our final episode, uh, <laughs> Dog, which is one of the most famous Twilight Zone episodes. Anyone uh, that got a Simpsons parody. Yeah, I feel like the Simpsons. <laughs> you know, we'll be getting into that in a bit. This is back to season five, episode six. It is the 126th overall. Right, in an effort to comfort her troubled daughter, Christy, Annabelle buys the popular talkie Tina doll. Much of Christie's troubles come from her new stepfather, Eric, a sexually infertile uh, man who directs his frustrations about that at Christine and to a lesser extent his wife. You see, he can't impregnate her or possibly can't even get it up. And oh boy, does he feel threatened by that. Yeah, what was it that you said when we were watching? We were watching this episode and it was really hard for a woman to get a divorce at this point in time. Yeah, something that strikes me whenever I'm like marathoning Twilight Zone episodes, because this is a, a go-to comfort show for me. It's something that I'll just like throw on oh, while same. I'm doing other things. Most of the marriages are unhappy. And, you know, if you're watching it in, you know, 2021, you might sit there thinking, like, why are these people together? Why wouldn't they just leave? And you're like, 
oh, but it's like the late 50s or early 60s. It's a lot harder to do that back then, especially if you're the wife. Yeah, I think no-fault divorces um, in the U.S. weren't until 1969, if if I'm remembering this correctly. I don't know the exact date, but the first one was uh, the do-it was California. Ronald Reagan signed it into law. (laughs) Yes, this is during a period where a husband could commit a a wife to a mental institution without her consent and just completely get away with it. Spousal rape was seen as a thing that didn't exist. He holds all the power. His penis can't get hard anyways, and he needs an outlet for that rage, I guess. Yeah, and and I I quoted Frank from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He doesn't want a wife. He wants a bang maid. Except he can't bang her. Yeah, he so he just has a maid. But missing the point entirely of Eric's <laughs> frustration, yeah. Annabelle insists that Eric will grow to love Christine She's if he gives himself girl. the chance to. Talky Tina's catchphrase is, my name is Talky Tina and I love you very much. But when Eric winds the doll, it starts antagonizing him. Initially blaming the doll's hostility on a manufacturing defect, Eric begins suspecting that Annabelle is playing a trick on him when Talky Tina's conversation begins getting more elaborate. You see, his first thing is that in order to get back at me for my cruelty, you have stuffed a walkie-talkie in this doll and are now using it as an emotional outlet for your rage because I'm a projector. I I was going to say, I just love when Taki Tina's like, he's like, I thought you said you had feelings. She's like, I can take it if you can. I'm like, I love you, Taki Tina, you evil doll. Yeah, for something that's supposed to be cute and innocent, it comes off very threatening horror very quickly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, dolls are creepy. Eric throws the doll out, but soon receives a phone call where the doll threatens to kill him. <laughs> Eric examines the trash can he chucked the doll into, finding it empty. Uh, He confronts Annabelle about this, who pleads innocence. And And is also very alarmed at how crazy her husband is acting. Yeah, I feel bad for her. Eric realizes that Annabelle was tucking in Christine when he received the call, meaning that she couldn't be plausibly responsible for it. I think he's already figured out where this is going. He just doesn't want to admit it to himself or at the very least say it out loud because mm. you've planted a walkie-talkie and a hidden microphone into the doll is already a crazy story. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, as the, the Simpsons covered it, the doll's trying to kill me and the toaster's been laughing at me. I'd say the pressure has gotten the dad, but what, what pressure? pressure? <laughs> Eric finds the doll in bed with Christine. He angrily seizes it, ignoring Christine's uh, tearful protest and chastising her when she calls him daddy. He's such a dick. Eric tries to destroy the doll with a vice, a blowtorch, and a circular saw to no effect. (laughs) Yeah, that's what she's like. I can take it if you can. (laughs) Annabelle, hearing the saw, (laughs) walks in on Eric, pulling this shit. And that's her last straw. He throws the doll in a burlap sack and then places it in a trash can weighed down with bricks <laughs> before he confronts his wife, who is frightened at his unhinged behavior. She has begun packing to leave, but 
After questioning whether he could have possibly imagined the whole thing, Eric pleads with Annabelle to stay, offering to give the doll back to Christine, flat out asking if that will be enough to fix things. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those, that is not the problem here. Like, it's, it reads like a, a, you know, our relationships post. Like, my husband has taken my daughter's doll and I think it's my fault. Help. <laughs> also, this is like a, a moment of understanding uh, Taki Tina's motives here. If she was looking to threaten or scare Eric into better behavior, she could have considered this a successful moment and kind of kept things going. But she's just out for blood. She's like, oh, my name is Taki Tina and I don't forgive you as soon as she pulls him out of the trash. Taki Tina doesn't fuck around. That night, Eric is awakened by suspicious noises. Getting up to investigate, he trips over the doll on the staircase, sustaining fatal injuries in the subsequent fall. Discovering the doll by Eric's body, Annabelle picks it up, causing it to say, My name is Taki Tina, and you better be nice to me. (laughs) And then for the rest of their lives, those two people are at the service of that haunted doll. I don't know. I think better of Talkie Tina. I don't. <laughs> there is a fan theory that Christy is latently telepathic and is projecting her impotent rage through Talkie Tina, especially since Tina has the same name. They're both riffs on Christina. I'm kind of cool with the doll being haunted. Yeah, I like it too. I mean, especially since the doll threatens the mom. I, I think the doll's just evil. Well... Christine is a little kid and therefore is more apt to be casually cruel to people around her. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I take it back. Not for you, Eric, but you know. <laughs> All right, production for this. Jerry Soul banged out this script in one day. You know, I, I believe it. I've banged out drafts in one day, too. The house set for this was reused in another Twilight Zone episode, Ring-A-Ding Girl. Oh, I love that one. This episode was scored by Bernard Herman. That name sounds very familiar. Uh, yes. He's come up on the show a couple of times before because, of course, he has. His first credit is the score for Citizen Kane. His last is for Taxi Driver. Uh, he's best known for his scores for Alfred Hitchcock, most notably Psycho and Vertigo. He's one of the most acclaimed film score composers of all time. Also gave the theremin its Hollywood debut in The Day the Earth Stood Still. It kind of reminds me how whenever anybody brings up Danny Elfman as a composer, it's mostly about his Tim Burton and Sam Raimi work, and sometimes people forget that he did the theme music for The Simpsons. But in addition to scoring this episode, Bernard Herrmann wrote the theme song to The Twilight Zone, which for most composers would be the feather in one's cap, as opposed to just, you know, another thing on a very busy resume. Yeah, good for him. The doll itself was not created for the show. (laughs) It was a commercially produced doll made by the Vogue Doll Company from 1959 to 1961. And I was waiting to read the part where they like altered the doll to make it look creepier. They never did. It's just what that doll looks like. They didn't get in trouble for using it either, did they? Nope. The (laughs) doll's name was Brickhead. Feel free to Google if you haven't seen one. However, Talkie Tina herself was modeled after Mattel's Chatty Cathy. Briquette was not a talking doll. They had to put some electronics into it. Chatty Cathy was also voiced by June Foray. We gotta talk about June Foray. <laughs> yeah, but first, uh, bring up references in other outside media for this, because this one has a long shadow. It's one of the bigger Twilight Zone episodes. 
mentioned already, Clown Without Pity from Treehouse of Horror 3 in 1992, the Simpsons episode. <laughs> One of the best episodes. Absolutely. I haven't seen it yet. But we can fix that later. Yay! <laughs> I could have sworn I made yeah, you Yeah, I know. That's what I thought, too. But I was like, wait a second, you're quoting something that I don't recognize. But then again, I also did not grow up watching The Simpsons. There's some trilogy of terror and child's play in Clown Without Pity as well, but it's mostly talky Tina. Mm -hmm. Now, the other aspect of it is that I mentioned that the mother in this episode is named Annabelle. Sylvan asked me if that was a direct nod. It is. The people uh, who produced the Conjuring franchise named their possessed devil doll after the Twilight Zone mom. Yeah, the real Annabelle doll is a giant Raggedy Ann doll. Right, moving on, the cast for this. First off, Terry Savalas is Eric. He is best known for playing the detective Kojak on TV. Which Dad brings up every time we have eh. the Twilight Zone marathon and this episode airs. That sounds like something a dad would say. He is also a Bond villain. He played Blofeld in On Her Majesty's Secret Service it, a couple of years ago. Was it um, an on-screen yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. You saw his face. It was, okay. the, it was, it's the Lazenby one with all the ski chases. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, he's my favorite Blofeld. As I'm going to Charles Gray. Yeah, he's uh, he also had a he's uh, I think the only person on uh, the Twilight Zone to have a number one pop hit, although in the United Kingdom. Oh really? Well, yeah. Who was it? Yeah, he sang lead on a cover of "If" by Bread. He's a singer-songwriter in addition to an actor. He apparently that deep dulcet voice of his carries well into song. Good for him. Yeah, he's playing a very arch character here, as in most God, Twilight Zone people. He is mm-hmm. he is evil McEvilstein. <laughs> he does it well, though. I, I love the scenes where he's like bantering with talking yeah. to us. <laughs> And most of his lines are purple prose, but he, he has this fun affect to him. Uh, mm-hmm. Once again, he does have a fantastic voice. He's excellent Bond villain just because of that voice. But, uh, yeah, he takes very, very standard, I bang this out in a day, bad guy dialogue, and makes you smile while he's reading it. Yeah, it's like, can he act outside of an inan- next to an inanimate object? Yes. And do it well. Yeah, we have uh, Mary LaRoche's Annabelle, a pretty thankless role in this. I looked up her credits, mostly other one-off TV appearances. Mm-hmm. She has to be the straight man for this. There uh, needs to be one. Yeah, most of it is clutching her pearls at the horrible things that Eric is doing and saying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, also, like, getting a little more scared as his sanity seems to be crumbling before her eyes. Yeah, it isn't much, but she does well with that. It's looking at her when he's like, then how come the doll says different things to me when I'm alone with it? (laughs) Her reaction to that is delicious. (laughs) Tracy Stratford as Christy. This is her other major appearance. She is best known for voicing Lucy Van Pelt in Charlie Brown Christmas. So we have two big cartoon voices in this one. Yay! And as I said, she didn't really have too many credits after this. She only got to be Lucy once, as I mentioned in that episode with Toby. Her voice changed immediately afterwards. Doesn't get to be the great, in the Great Pumpkin or any of the other ones. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find any like interviews with her where she talks about the Twilight Zone. It's usually about Lucy. And then, last but certainly not least, June Foray <laughs> as the voice of Talking Tina. <laughs> Yay! Definitely the better of her Twilight Zone appearances. 
as I mentioned, she dubs over the voices of one of the little girls in the bewitching pool and uses her Rocky the Flying Squirrel voice. If you don't know who June Foray is, yes, you do. She has hundreds of credits, a lot, even by voice actor standards. Yeah, she lived to be 99 years old and was working for most of her life. She was Granny in Witch Hazel and Looney Tunes, Cindy Lou Who in How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Magic of the Spell on DuckTales. The she's, Mad Madam Mim. She's in Sleeping Beauty, a whole bunch of other things. One time Chuck Jones said that uh, people keep telling me that June Foray is the female Mel Blanc. And no, Mel Blanc is the male June Foray. <laughs> The themes for this one, more Uncanny Valley, obviously, oh, yeah. but this segs into the haunted doll killer toy uh, <laughs> idea. <laughs> Everybody has at least one toy when they're a kid that they are frightened of. Yeah, our cousins had one that looked an awful lot like Chucky, <laughs> mm-hmm. and we were young enough to find Chucky to be scary instead of hilarious, so that didn't go over well for some of us. Yeah, and uh, we also had this one doll that, like, once its hair got ungelled from the packaging stuff that it came with, it started looking really disturbing, and then it got a cut over its forehead. I used to move that one around our bedroom to scare my sisters. <laughs> yeah, I do think Uncanny Valley is part of it, something that looks pretty close to human, but not quite there yet. But uh, as I discussed on our episode about Black Christmas, I do think there's an element to the haunted killer doll thing that's more of a transgression of wholesome childhood youth. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're taking this thing that was so sweet and you're making it naughty in order to symbolize the loss of your innocence, or maybe you're just being an edgelord. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as, as Chatty Cathy was at the height of her popularity during this period, and, you know, and the Tickle Me Elmo or Cabbage Patch doll of its time, <laughs> maybe Beaumont, or rather Soul, was going, eh, I'll make fun of this doll because I had to buy one. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what his actual motive was. Alright, so that sums up the entirety of my notes. Uh, is there anything we'd like to add to the Twilight Zone before we sign off? I was kind of light on background on how the show started. I'd imagine when we finally get around to Serling, I'll do it there. Also, I've been, you know, reading more stuff about it. I'm working my way through the Twilight Zone companion at the moment, so I'd know more when we get there. But, uh, anything you want to say before we sign off? Um, I think we covered my thoughts pretty well for this one. I'll happily come back and uh, go into some more detail for a Sterling uh, feature. You know, I think it's good that we started here and, you know, gave credit to two writers who I think kind of get a little lost amongst, you know, the other people who worked on the Twilight Zone and maybe, you know, like, the new exhibit and Queen of the Nile, they may not ever really hit into any of like the big top 10 lists of Twilight Zone episodes, but they're both still really good. And it's always nice to take another look at, you know, Taki Tina, <laughs> who's always fun to watch. So join us for another episode uh, for this series at some point, probably doing, you know, Beaumont properly next or Matheson before Serling. I also was thinking about doing one of these, The Simpsons. The Simpsons also lends itself readily to this format, at least according to me. But (laughs) until then, good night. Bye.